0: Morning, New Life. Good to see you guys on this uh, extremely rainy day. Hopefully, uh, you're not too cold. When I got in, it was a little bit humid in here, so I, I put on the air conditioners. But if you're underneath and you're feeling cold, you know, feel free to say something to a Sunday team member, and I'm sure they'd be uh, more than happy to turn off the air conditioning for you. Um, I, I do know New Life is kind of known to be a little bit cold. So let us know what we can do. Man, I thought that was such a good reading by Christine. Um, there's some uh, proper nouns in there. You know, There's some pretty uh, tough words in there, but she didn't trip up or anything. Um, I always uh, try to offer my help when it comes to pronunciation of these uh, proper nouns, and she refused it, you know, and she was like, no, it'll be okay, and it turned out really well. So I'm probably gonna mess up now. I'm probably gonna say something weird when it comes to these uh, names. Um, A bit of a question as we get started with things. What can make things right for the world that we live in? What can make things right for the world that we live in? You know, when we look at our current place in history, when we look at the pandemics, you know, affecting the world, politics, leadership issues, human on human violence, economic inequality, that question comes to mind, doesn't it? What hope is there? For things to be made right in our world, our home. What hope is there for our home? Keep that question in mind as we explore uh, the start of this sermon series. As Christine Christine mentioned, uh, there I go. I've already stumbled over one of the easier names. So we are beginning a new series today that will take us just past Easter Sunday uh, called Make Things Right. And this series is going to aid us as we take a closer look at the way that God has answered this question in the history of the Bible. And I mean, the the way that the sermon series is set out is gonna be very intentional about the way that we go about things. So we're gonna spend quite a few weeks looking at how humans call out to God and ask, make things right, make things right for us. And then once we get to Good Friday, uh, we're gonna look at how humans attempt to make things right. And finally, we're going to look at how God does make things right. You know, the story of the Bible goes like this. So we can see in the Bible that God has created this world. Humanity sinned turning away from God. God re entered into history to create a new people for himself. And eventually, a new creation emerges out of this broken world through Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, the sermons that make up this series should really be taken as a whole, so I do encourage you to be a part of them, Uh, be with us for Good Friday, and look forward to Easter Sunday and beyond as well. Uh, With that in mind, why don't I pray for us as we get stuck into the message. Father, as we gather together this morning, uh, we pray that our worship to you, our devotion to you, would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, there's nothing else that we want to live for other than your beauty, your majesty, and your happiness in us, God. Even if we don't know it yet, we want for that satisfaction that we long for in our hearts to come from you. As we look towards the brokenness of our homes, as we look towards the brokenness of our world, would you help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon you once again? The author and perfecter of our faith, the one that put things together from the beginning, speaking things into motion, the one that knew us from even before the world came into being, and the one that knows us now. Lord, indeed, you are able, you're willing, and you do put things together once again. And so we pray, Lord, that as you create new creation, that that would first begin with us as well, God that you would create new life within our hearts, that you would turn our hearts towards fresh devotion in you. Help us, Lord, this morning uh, to glean from your word this morning, to hear from you, and to be changed by uh, the word that you have for us. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as mentioned, um, this series, Make Things Right, is gonna explore the story of the Bible, how things were made right from the beginning, and then how things went wrong, and how we as humanity sought to make things right, and how God does ultimately make things right. In our passage in Jeremiah this morning, uh, maybe you've encountered it before, maybe you haven't, Um, it talks about God's people and the destruction of their home, their earthly home here. But in order to understand the magnitude of what the fall of Jerusalem meant to them, we need to know a little bit more about the history of home in the Bible. What is home? What does that really look like? So let's take a look at the first home that humanity ever had. So if you look on screen, you can follow along as well. Um, Genesis 2 reads this. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, you might have encountered this uh, passage before, but not only does God place the man in the Garden of Eden, you know, he doesn't just plop him down there, man's first home in the Garden of Eden, but that word place, it can also be defined in the original language that it was written in, Hebrew, as made to rest. So God, he takes the man and causes him to rest in the Garden of Eden, to serve and keep it. (laughs) Isn't isn't this a beautiful image? When you think about home, you don't just want to be like, you know, just plop there in your home, but you want to be made to rest in your home. God made home to be a place of rest and fullness. The opening chapters of our Bible talks about how God creates, and it is good. Man is made to rest in the garden by God, and it's to be a place of enjoying a flourishing relationship with God and between man and woman. Work isn't toil, but is instead a part of the rest and fullness that humanity finds at home. I think there's a lot of people here that kind of wish work wasn't like toil, but it can be part of the rest. There's this particular Hebrew word uh, that gets across this feeling that we're meant to feel at home, and it's this, shalom. You may have heard this word before. It's used as a greeting in a lot of cultures. It's translated throughout your Bible as peace. Sometimes you might see it as completeness. It can also be defined as wholeness. Spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, flourishing, well-being. It's got a whole bunch of different definitions there, right? Shalom is even used to refer to things like structures materials. So for example, if you see a wall that's completed, has no gaps, no missing bricks, it is shalom. My teeth are shalom. I'm not missing any teeth anymore. And so it is shalom. It's one of these words where translation into another language doesn't quite do it justice because of the greatness of the meaning behind it. I'm sure you can think of other words that come from the different cultures that you might be from, where you're like, man, I wish there was an English word for that. You know, my English-speaking friends, they could really benefit from knowing this word in Korean or this word in Chinese or whatever it might be, and you're like, oh, now I have to use like 10,000 words to get across what I'm trying to say. Home should bring about this feeling of shalom for us. After all, Home is the place that God rested us so that we could experience fullness in our lives. I don't know how you feel about home. There have been only a few times in my life where I think I felt something a little bit, almost, like what I imagined this to feel like, what I imagined Shalom to feel like. Okay? So coming home after a really nice holiday overseas, you know, a bit, sleeping in a hotel, doesn't really feel like home. Sleeping in another person's house doesn't really feel that restful. You're always kind of like, you know, (laughs) this is one of those Korean words. Uh, You're always looking around to make sure you're not doing anything wrong, you know. And so finally coming home, driving in to the city where I live and feeling, ah, now I can rest. I'm finally at home. And it felt kind of like what I imagined Shalom to feel like. Coming back to new life in December has felt like a homecoming for me as well. You know, perhaps you feel that way too. Home is designed by God to be a place where life and health are sustained, where we find rest and restoration, where relationships grow and mature. And yet, you'll find here on earth, we can't quite get that original design of a home any longer. In this world, it's not quite possible. And so we can only catch these tantalizing glimpses of it. Like we see home and we're like, it's almost there. I feel like I'm almost there. And we wonder, what can make things right for our home once again? What can make us feel this shalom once again? Now the story of creation might be very familiar to you if you've read Genesis before. This is one of those uh, classic New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read through the Bible. And we, usually we'll get past this part, right, in Genesis. Uh, the story of creation might be very familiar. The human sin, they do exactly what God had commanded them not to do, wanting to be masters of their own home, of their own domain. And so they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they eat their eyes are opened, and they're exiled from the garden. And here, this starts once again. This constant human longing for home, it starts here. In vain ambition, humanity, we lost something that we already had. We already had it, but we lost it. The Bible goes on to detail the story of the people that God made for himself. They increase in number, eventually they form a nation. They desire to create a home for themselves in their nation. And so they even build a temple for God to live in, a meeting place between them and God where they can come and worship him. In order for this nation to come together, a lot has to happen. We see the story unfold throughout Genesis. The bloodline of the first man, it splits into 12 tribes. And finally they come back together to form this nation, Israel. But there's this ongoing turmoil internally among the people and externally as well with the surrounding people, the surrounding nations. And the people's strained relationship with God is central to all this. People are constantly turning away from God in order to make their own decisions. I don't know if you're like me, like when I watch a, a drama or like a TV show, and you know, a Bora laughs at me because I'm constantly yelling at the TV, like Why are you doing this? You know, And it's like, well, the characters can't hear you. It's already pre-recorded. And yet, I still find myself trying to direct them and being like, no, don't do that. Don't fall in love with that guy. You know, all these things. Um, You kind of do that with the Bible as well. You see the people in their strained relationship, they constantly turn away from God. And you're like, no, 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 go back. You were almost there. But they make their own decisions, trying once again to become masters of their own homes, repeating the pattern that began in the garden at creation. And so despite the fact that they're constantly longing for home, the people continue to set their hearts and minds towards the things that sow into their exile, that sent them into exile in the first place. There's no rest for the people. There's no shalom in the land. In your own life right now, Where do you feel like you're experiencing this lack of shalom? Have a think about it. Where are the things where you're like, yeah, I'm definitely not experiencing shalom in this? In the Bible, the story continues, king after earthly king comes and goes in Israel with people following their leadership into greater idolatry and sin. And occasionally, you can get this glimmer of hope as the people turn back to God but they always turn back to their own evil desires. The lack of shalom grows until even the nation of Israel is split into two, resulting in two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And Judah is where we find ourselves in our passage this morning in Jeremiah. And up to this point in the Bible, we've seen wars even happening between these two kingdoms that are supposed to be united. That's supposed to be the dwelling place of God. We see attacks from surrounding nations around them. And we see, generally, just unrest across the land. And now here, in Jeremiah 52, we see Zedekiah. Here's this guy, the last king of Judah, appointed by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II. And by this time in Israel's history, they're paying tribute to Babylon. Zedekiah, Going against the advice of the prophet Jeremiah. You already know this is bad because the book is called Jeremiah. Other advisors and family also advise him, but he goes against their word as well. And he follows in the pattern of the king that came just before him, the king that he replaced, Jehoiakim, who had also rebelled against Babylon and tried to join forces with Egypt in order to gain some sort of freedom. And Zedekiah, similarly, Revolts against Babylon, and the Babylonians sieged Jerusalem. Read with me, Jeremiah 52, 4-5. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until King Zedekiah's eleventh year. So, Zedekiah, uh, sorry, not Zedekiah, Jerusalem is sieged for about 30 months before finally falling completely to the Babylonian army. And this marks the end of national life for the people. The nation of Israel is no more. Continues on. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into and all the warriors fled. They left the city at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden that the Chaldeans surrounded the city. They made their way along the route, along the route to Araba. The Chaldean army pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah's entire army left him and scattered. The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath and he passed sentence on him. Now, you can imagine a walled city like Jerusalem. Okay, it's got walls all around it to protect it from the advancing nations. It's trying to keep out this advancing army of Babylon, and it only has so much food. If it's being sieged on every side by by this great army, you can't just be like, okay, time out. Let me get some food. No, the food supply is whatever's inside, and it gets completely exhausted here. You can read about the effects of this in the Book of Lamentations. And in their weakened state, the people can no longer defend the city. The city is broken into. The walls are no longer able to keep the enemy out. Eventually, the walls are broken. The walls are no longer shalom. The warriors flee. King Zedekiah is eventually abandoned by his troops because they have no desire to give their allegiance to the king. Doesn't that sound familiar? The Bible goes on At at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes, and he also slaughtered the Judean commanders. Then he blinded Zedekiah and bound him with bronze chains. The king of Babylon brought Zedekiah to Babylon where he kept him in custody until his dying day. So Zedekiah gets taken to Nebuchadnezzar, and he has to watch, he's forced to watch as one by one his sons are put to death in front of him. And then his eyes are put out. And finally, he's taken into chains, he's taken in chains into Babylon, kept alive, no doubt, so that they can parade this king of Israel, the one that dared rebel against the great Babylon throughout the city so people can watch and see, yeah, they're nothing. Our king is something. And So this triumphal entry happens. King Zedekiah comes in as a trophy of war. And there in Babylon, Zedekiah is to remain until his death. All of this violence, this war and evil, this is a continuation of the pattern of humanity's leaning towards rebellion. So as Adam and Eve rebelled against a good God and sought to create their own home, Zedekiah rebelled against a not, so good, a not so good king and sought to create his own home. Zedekiah loses everything. He's even physically blinded, just like he and the people had been spiritually blind. And finally, He sent into exile in Babylon, just as the people have been in self-imposed exile from God's presence. We're told in the opening of the chapter, which we didn't read together, that Jerusalem and Judah were finally banished from God's presence due to their evil ways. Exiled, as they had always acted as though they wanted. And the rest of the passage that we read together Details the systematic destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. From verse 12, on the 10th day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, entered Jerusalem as a representative of the king of Babylon. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses or the important buildings. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guard tore down all the walls surrounding Jerusalem Nebuzaradan the captain of the guards deported some of the poorest of the people as well as the rest of the people who remained in the city the deserters who had defected to the king of babylon and the rest of the craftsmen but nebuzaradan the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers So the captain of the guards, Nabuz he gets introduced to us here in this passage. He's sent to carry all of this out, burning down the temple, the king's palace, all the houses, important buildings, all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Imagine with me for a moment. Put yourself in this story. If you're an inhabitant of this city, of this great city, Jerusalem, the place that you've called home, what would be going through your mind at this point? The temple of God where the people worship God, the meeting place with God, the home of their king, their own homes, and even the walls that they depended on to keep them safe. All of these things are broken down and there's no more shalom in the land. If you jump down to verse 24, with me, the captain of the guards also took away Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest of the second rank, and her three doorkeepers. From the city, he took a court official who had been appointed over the warriors, seven trusted royal aides found in the city, the secretary of the commander of the army who enlisted the people of the land for military duty, and 60 men from the common people who were found within the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guards, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah went into exile from its land. So Nebuzaradan takes the highest ranking priests and officials from the temple. It's like if me and all the MDs get taken. Then the officers in charge of civic duties as well. And then a bunch of the city's able-bodied men and has all of them executed. And Babylon is sending a message. No more rebellion. You've done this twice, no more. Your nation's dead. You're one of us. And this sets the scene for the Israelites for the years spent in Babylonian captivity. And this kind of goes some way towards showing you the context of where we're headed when it comes to things like Palm Sunday, when it comes to the people crying out to God. God, you need to make things right. Make things right for us. Come and fix this. This isn't right. They're crying out to God. Zedekiah was their last earthly king and the nation would wait for the Messiah to come and make things right for them. And we know the reason that all of this happened, that the people went into exile. It's sin. This isn't just a pattern for the people the Bible. It's something that we see in our lives today. We are humanity. We've turned away from God believing we can live for ourselves, be masters of our own homes, and effectively, we put ourselves into exile because we like to make our own way. We want to find shalom in a home of our own choosing not realizing that true shalom and our true home can only be found in the presence of God. And so we suffer. We're constantly looking for something to fill the hole in our hearts, to bring us contentment, fulfillment, peace. Have you found fulfillment? Have you found what you're looking for? Or are you like the Israelites here, subjugated, enslaved to the very thing that you thought would bring wholeness and fulfillment to your home. Maybe it's work, maybe it's relationships, money, whatever it might be, and you find yourself enslaved rather than set free. And the irony is that the people's enslavement to their obsession is broken by their subjugation to this land, by their enslavement to Babylon. You know, one of my favorite parables in the New Testament is a parable of the prodigal son. You know, I'm sure some of you guys know this. Um, in it, we see this younger son who decides, he wants to make his own way in life. He asks for his inheritance early, the inheritance that he's supposed to receive when his father dies. But his father, being gracious, obliges him, gives him his portion, and then the younger son leaves home, exiling himself from his family, and he spends everything on sinful, wild living. If you're familiar with this uh, parable, he ends up impoverished, starving in this foreign land, and he comes back groveling, but the father won't have any of it. He just sweeps him up in this extravagant love and grace, forgiving everything, just overjoyed to have his son back. Nothing else matters. And then we meet this third character, the older brother in the story. He's seething, he's angry. He can't believe that his father would do this. He's mad at this perceived injustice. If you're an older sibling, maybe you can relate to this. He's jealous that he hasn't gotten this kind of celebration for himself. He's mad. He's like, how can you forgive this guy? He said he'd rather want you dead. And this older son, he thinks of himself as not really a son, but instead a worker under his dad. And he won't come in and celebrate his younger brother being found again. I remember reading this, reading this parable, really just wishing, just yelling at my Bible again, you know, really just wishing that his older brother would just go in and celebrate. Like, dude, like, your younger brother's back. Didn't you think he was dead? But he's alive. And then it will go further, and I would think, no, more than that, I really wish you, older brother, would have left home. On and look for that younger brother to begin with. Why couldn't you do that? If you look at Philippians 2, verses 68, it talks about Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Last September, we read through Philippians 2 together, and we saw how Jesus left his own true home, leaving the shalom, this relational, perfect harmony, the rest that he had at home. And he was born into this world in a place that wasn't even his earthly parents' home. It's like that song that we sang, the second song, right? He was born into just a bunch of dirt. His family was then forced into exile again. Exile out of exile, escaping to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him, kill Jesus when he was just a baby. The rest of his life doesn't get easier. He wanders the land. He doesn't have a place to lay his head or call home. And then his life ends as he lived. He's crucified outside of the gates of the city, exiled, rejected. Listen to how Hebrews 13 puts it. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Jesus stands in our place. We, the exiles, who are longing for a home that we ourselves rejected, where we would turn on one another, not bothering to seek out our brother, let alone standing up for our king. Jesus is cast out so that we can come home. Where we had no peace, Jesus received all the wrath that was reserved for us so that we can have safety, so that we can have shalom. I urge you, think about the places in your life, think about the things in your life where you experience this lack of shalom and see how Jesus is making all things new for you how he is our fullness of joy. In Christ's resurrection, we see the power of death broken and the exile come to an end as we're brought once again before our Father, who stands, who runs, who sweeps us up in his arms, happy to have us back, and we're back in right standing. Jesus' resurrection itself, it becomes a glimpse into the future, into the new heavens, the new earth, that's going to become our true home one day when he returns. He's made a way for us and he is making a way for us. In this period leading up to Easter Sunday, we can look forward and anticipate Christ's resurrection once again. Let it be fresh in your minds. We can live out the history of redemption throughout the Bible in our lives today. As all things are reconciled, he will one day Remake the world into the garden city of God, just as it used to be at creation. Restoring the home that we all long for, creating that true shalom that we are longing for now. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we turn to you, our gracious, loving, forgiving, merciful Heavenly Father, the one who would delay, the one with seemingly endless patience, patience for us, for our sins, for our constant sins, patience for our family, our friends, our neighbors, those that we wish knew you. But even greater than that wish is in our hearts, How much greater the ache in your heart as you stand, as you survey the horizon, waiting for us to even make the slightest turn in our posture, waiting for us to turn our faces even slightly towards your son, your son Jesus, our brother who went out looking for us when we were far off in exile, in a self-imposed exile far from your presence, from our true home. Thank you, Lord, where we had no peace, we now now find fullness of peace. We now find true peace. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to grasp the shalom, help us to turn our faces to meet Jesus, our brother who suffers in our place for our sins. a way back home for us. Lord, let us be a heavenly-minded people, ones who would exit through the city gates, leaving this earthly home, which is not home at all. Help us, Lord, to look forward to our true home, the one that you're remaking through your son, Jesus. May we be a heavenly-minded people, citizens of heaven, ones that see the true value of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your love. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.